episode 17 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week, inside the Roleplay Studio, I have Jen J. Dixon, ex-cubicle inmate and wannabe evolutionary biologist. You may also know Jen as one of the hosts of the Walking Eye podcast and as the successful coordinator of a Kickstarter project to produce a book on sex and plants called The Botanical Voyeur, Sex on the Prairies. You can find out more information about Jen at jenjdixon.com. So without further ado, hi there Jen, how's it going? Pretty good, how are you? I'm doing just fine. I've got a couple of questions here to start off with just so people can discover your role-playing credentials and give them a little bit of frame of reference for uh, some of the answers you give here in the future. So how long have you been a role-player? Well, it's an interesting question. I'm I'm assuming you mean tabletop role-playing game type player, not someone who decides to take on other roles. Because I remember being six years old and wanting to be an Arctic explorer after a big snow. But... I don't know, actual tabletop gaming since I was about 16, so almost 15 years now. Right. And uh, so what did you uh, get started playing? That uh, It's a horrifying story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you should say that. Without even hearing a story, the number of people whose first contact with role-playing has been traumatic, and yet they're still role-players, is surprisingly large. Go ahead. Yeah, I think I think it's just people kind of crave that that one perfect, amazing role playing experience that they had, and a lot of us might have had that experience when they were young. Um, but I decided when I was 16 years old that I was better than all the other 16 year olds, and I had a bunch of friends who were older than me, and they decided they wanted to play something really edgy, and they were going to play White Wolf, uh, World of Darkness. Right. And I was like an ex-Christian Baptist at the time who remembers going to classes teaching us that D&D and White Wolf were the devil. And so I thought I was being all emo and edgy (laughs) and uh, totally played a witch in uh, the World of Darkness, which was like an amalgamation of all the different uh, like mage and vampire all put together. Right, Right, as it should be. Yeah, totally. Uh, So yeah, so that was my first experience, skipping school to leave at lunch to go play with people older than me that I totally thought was awesome. And so do you have a, like fond memories of, uh, of those games specifically because of that, because it was, was edgy, or did you go along to play it thinking you were being edgy and dangerous and then discover that it was actually fabulous and was the best thing you ever did? I think looking back, I'm a little horrified, and I definitely think I was being ridiculous. But at the time when I was playing, um, I really thought that I was, you know, writing the coolest character ever. And no one had ever thought of a Malkavian who played yo-yos and talked in limericks. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it's funny. It's funny how you see those games as your perspective changes over time. Right. And this gives me the ideal opportunity to ask uh this particular question I've been harboring for a number of years. So it sounds almost like all those warnings that the Baptist preachers gave you about Dungeons and Dragons and White Wolf was actually true because it did subvert you and uh, force you to uh, deal with vampires and things that are generally perceived to be you know, the work of the devil. Well, <clears throat> I think that, at, le- at least in my situation, I think a lot of people's experiences may differ. Um, I think that it did have an effect, and it definitely helped me move into a position to start thinking more critically for myself. Right. Um, but I can't necessarily say I, I, I would have left the church, or I'm sorry, I can't necessarily say I would have stayed believing in God or you know, stayed true to whatever my beliefs were at the time um, without White Wolf. It just so happened that 
White Wolf was in a position that I, it was accessible to me. Right. And, and so I think it maybe helped me start thinking creatively, um, but I think it would have happened anyway. I would have, I would have subverted <laughs> or, or left uh, no matter what. It just might have helped a little. Right. And so you started off with, uh, with White Wolf and mm-hmm. a crazy Malkavian yo-yoing limerick writer. Crazy, yeah. mad. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Look how crazy I am. Um, exactly. And, and uh, then what did you play? After that, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons, and at the time it was 3.5 is what I started. And that was actually, that was the big group that I played in for several years. So to give you kind of a bit of perspective, White Wolf lasted for about six months until teenage drama. And then after that, I ran into a couple other friends who I met. Teenage uh, drama is a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It should have been. They probably would have had more fun. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But so I left that group, and I just so happened to have a couple friends who wanted to start up a Dungeons & Dragons game. And I was super excited now because that is exactly what the preacher had warned us about. And I I thought if there was any way to guarantee my spot in hell, playing Dungeons & Dragons was going to be it. So I jumped right into it. Right, so you get a right hand of the get to the, the seat at the right hand of the devil, exactly, as opposed yeah. to the right hand of God. Brilliant. Um, and so after Dungeons and Dragons, well, White Wolf, then Dungeons and Dragons, and then, and then this is where things get a little crazy. So, did D and D for a while. Um, ended up kind of branching off a little bit into things like Tolis. Um, what else, you know, which is basically D&D, a little bit of Arcana Evolved. And I stayed kind of in that uh, D20 kind of traditional role-playing systems um, for several, several years. And then about five or six years ago, uh, Ken Mastraski, or uh, Kevin from The Walking Eye, right. he and I were dating at the time, and he had found this game called Kill Puppies for Satan. Um, and it's, it's funny, all this devil talk, and then I bring up this game, and, <laughs> <laughs> which it's, it's a really hilarious game. Um, it, it was a really good thing for Vincent to write it. But what was most important about it wasn't the subject matter. It was how they actually treated the players and the GMs in the game. And all of a sudden, I realized that there were other types of games out there, not just this kind of standard D20 uh, kind of GM as the master of all things. Right. Uh, scenario yeah and so that's actually when i started playing like um got into dogs in the vineyard got into in a wicked age uh, a lot of these indie games and so for the last several years i've been playing all kinds of indie games i've probably played in the hundreds of different games and i've really gained a new respect for what gaming actually is and what it can be for people right Uh, and so now i basically just tell people that this is how adults play and uh i totally embraced my gamerhood with no shame of the D background and white wolf background that i came from wow okay so what are you playing now anything in particular mm-hmm. yep actually right now i have a once a week game which is uh an apocalypse world game right and i'm actually running it i'm having a fantastic time quite frankly apocalypse world is the perfect game for me right uh i am i am dark enough and screwed up enough that i can make post-apocalypse horror pretty awesome and so i'm having a really good time with that and then we actually kick a couple different games here and there uh we had played durance recently which is from bully pulpit games right. and that game is amazing and fantastic um i've done some dungeon world i've done oh, what else have i played here in the last month i think that's about it for the last month we also had our little walking icon uh a few weeks ago about a month ago and played a number of games there too but right now it's just apocalypse world right and Interesting you should mention um, Apocalypse World and saying that that's the game for you because um, 
in a number of episodes, I've floated this idea that you know, that gamers have a role-playing soulmate. Now, you, some people have not actually found that, but you know, a game that just gets you and fits you. And for some people, it's the first game they play. But for you, it sounds like it's, uh, it's Apocalypse World. Yes, but the thing is, is uh, I, I believe in loving more than just one thing at a time. <laughs> and so my my gaming table is always open to other games. Um, but there's something about, first off, Vincent Baker's games are amazing. They're well done, they're well written. Um, and something about how he does the dice mechanics to move the narrative of a story really appeals to me on a lot of levels. Right. And so any of his games are fantastic, but Apocalypse World, I mean, post-apocalypse genre, that is like my bread and butter. I love movies, comics, basically anything that's based on that genre, I can totally get down on. So you'd be prepared to uh, put your hand up and say that you love The Road? Yes, I do. I have, well, I love the book. Uh, the movie's pretty good. The pacing's a little bit weird, but yes, The Road is absolutely fantastic. All right. What about, uh, what about 1984, the, the day oh, yeah. after? That's uh, that's absolute classic. Uh, there's a few lines from that that I used to want tattooed to my flesh before I decided that I probably shouldn't put words on my skin. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the devil, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay, so what's your favorite book or supplement? For gaming. Uh, oh, absolutely, for sure. Well, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a gaming book, but something that you always go back to that uh, you find enjoyable. It may not even mean anything you play currently, but just something that uh, is a soft spot in your heart and you'll always love. I think Mouse Guard is actually going to be one of those. Um, I I really love the story, and I'm not really much of a cutesy kind of gamer. Right. Uh, but there's something about brutality in these really tiny, cute little mice that I love. And with the comics... Uh, and the book together, it's just a really nice, fun read. And so I'd like to fall back on that one. And another one which might surprise people is I love the shit out of uh, reading Free Market. Right. And I, I haven't had a successful game of it yet. I haven't found people who really want to play it with me. Uh, most people aren't excited about it, but I love the layout of that game. I love the creativity that they went into uh, as far as the, the, the page design. Like, everything about that is fun to read, and it's colorful. So that one actually stays in my bag every once in a while for when I want to show people an example of an indie book. Right. That's, that's a good one to go to. Have you tried Constant Con and the G-plus sort of environment, like tried finding other people interested in that game and playing it through that avenue? I thought about that, but honestly, I'm a in-person style gamer and and talker. I really rely on other people's like visual cues, like yes. what they look like when they're saying um, the hand gestures that they make. And in in a lot of the online methods, you lose that. Right. And I don't, I just don't have as much fun at it. Right. The biggest thing is, is I usually when I game, I kind of like skirt the line on what's acceptable and what's not. I mean, I have to have a lot of discussions of lines and veils. Right. Sure. And in person, I can be a little bit more clear that, you know, I'm making a joke or this is dry humor or, you know, you can accept the brutality of what I'm saying because, because it's coming from, you know, this halfway adorable redheaded chick. Right. Sure. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, so if you could cause one game, or supplement to cease to exist then, what would it be? It doesn't necessarily mean you think that it's badly written. It could just be because it's, you know, wronged you in some random way or it came along at a time in your life that was unpleasant. You always associate that game with, uh, with that situation. Okay. This, this was a tough one, and I really had to do a lot of thinking about this question, and I've had other people ask me this before. My almost immediate knee-jerk reaction is to obliterate the Camarilla White Wolf LARP 
from existence. <laughs> I think can't it wait caused, to know why. <laughs> well, I think I think it causes brain damage uh, <laughs> to not be subtle. I think that I think that that system is is a way to create a cult of people who aren't really striving for anything in their personal lives, and thus end up putting all of their time and effort into a game that doesn't really matter in the long run. Okay. Now, I know that's really harsh to say. No, no, it's, it's uh, perfectly valid. It's your viewpoint. I'm interested to hear what your justification. Well, and that's, I, I spent nine months LARPing, and all of my LARP experience comes from one small group here in Des Moines where I played. Right. And there's people there that I absolutely thought were fantastic people, right. but so much of that entire group's life was put into this game that by the end of it, I just felt like people were really kind of wasting away. Right. In, in their own creativity because they're dry, you know, trying to create these characters that really don't matter in the long run. And when you look at the worldwide style campaign that, that Camarilla is trying to build, right. it forces people into game and character decisions that I just don't think are very interesting. Right. So that aside, I don't think I'd really want to get rid of Camarilla LARP just because there, it does do some good for people. And there are storytellers who are inspired by the stories that are coming out of Camarilla or out of White Wolf in general. Right. So there is some benefit there. And when I think about taking something away completely, I want to make sure that there's no re- you know, ramifications. You know, what are we going to lose if we get rid of something? Sure. You can, you can be selfish. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, I, I try not to be. But, so there, but there is one game that came to mind that I think the world could definitely do without. Yep. And it's not... It's not because of the, who wrote it or what the subject matter is, because the, the person who wrote this game, I think, is a fantastic person. Um, and the game that I'm talking about is called Silence Keeps Me a Victim. Right. Are you familiar with that at all? I'm not, no. Okay. Uh, Clyde Rohr is who wrote that game, and it is a fantastic idea. He wrote the game as a way to deal with uh, childhood abuse. Right. And... It's an amazingly creative game in which you play with two people, and one person is kind of the guide who's guiding the imagery that the player is dealing with. Right. And that imagery is supposed to, like, evoke feelings of insecurity and being a child and being out of control. Um, And I I think that there are some really neat things that can come out of that game. We actually have an AP of it on our website. Right. Um, the problem is, is that when Clyde wrote the game, he really didn't take into account the psychology of, of games and how games can affect people's mindsets in the long term. Sure. And that game has the possibility of creating a, a semi-hypnotic state, which could actually cause trauma, I think, in right. people who were playing it. And so I think that that's why that should not be a game. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, pretty, it sounds pretty intense. I'm not sure that I'm ready to go to quite that level. Like, I mean, that sort of goes into the whole idea of is role-playing or should role-playing be cathartic? And it sounds like that game is just all about catharsis and nothing about story at all. Exactly. And, that's, and I could see it used as a tool for psychologists or psychologists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't like the idea of it being accessible to, to people who have no idea what damage they could actually do. Right, yeah, d- dangerous in the wrong hands type situation. Yeah. Yep. Well, thanks for looking out for me. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> so, um, are there any games or supplements that you're particularly looking forward to? Well, unfortunately, the last few weeks I've been dealing, or the last couple months I've been dealing with school and finals, so I haven't been really up on what's going on. Durance, I, I believe, I play tested that a couple months ago. I'm not sure if it's out already, 
Um, but if it's not, I'm really looking forward to Durance because that was absolutely fantastic. Almost everything that Bully Public Games does is amazing, and this does not let down. Okay. Um, Can you tell yeah, me a so bit about the, that? Because I'm not familiar with the game. So if you're not familiar with Bully, Bully Public Games, they're the guys who did Fiasco. And yeah. if you don't know what Fiasco is, you seriously need to start looking into these games because um, Fiasco is amazing. Actually, Will Wheaton uh, posted about Fiasco. He's done it, like, for the last year. Right. And, and actually plays it. So I don't know if you take your cues from stars or not. I don't. But that's cool. Uh, <laughs> it's basically, if you're thinking um, of, like, a, a fast-paced kind of out-world Western-style game, right. that, that's what this is to me. And I think the setting can change. But the concept is you have a colony of inmates of some fashion. Right. You build your world, you build the regimes, uh, you build the characters. So you just kind of take this idea of Durance, of uh, being um, withstrained or, or, yeah, withstrained or withheld. And you, and you make a, a world and a story out of it. And what's cool about this game is the world creation and then the way that it kind of leads into your actual character development. And so, like, when we played this game, we sat down and we had a good hour-long session of us talking about what we thought would be cool in our particular setting. Right. The character sheets are set up in a way that you just kind of, like, add these different tags to it. Right. And, uh, I don't know, so that's the quick summary. It's it's really, really cool. I had a fun time in it, and I'm excited to see, actually, what it looks like now that it's uh, actually being released. Right, so there's more mechanic to it than there is for Fiesco? I'd say so. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely more dice rolls in the setup. There's more uh, world building, um, and it's a little bit more kind of narrative input from the players than Fiasco is. Because with Fiasco, you roll your dice, you've got a couple tables that you pick your pick your stuff off of. Right. This is a little bit more freeform, where you're actually like creating tags for your world that people can kind of rely on as they're thinking about their characters or building kind of the the cities or populations that they're dealing with. Right. Okay, so if you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose and why? See, and this, this question is not fair at all. <laughs> I'm sorry, you I, have to choose one. I, I just don't know if I can. Yeah, it depends on the game. I mean, but, but if I had to choose, of, of all the games that I'm ever going to play in my life, I have to commit to one of those two. Yes. I would probably commit to being a GM. I just like a tough, tough choice for you. It is, because there's, there's some games that... I really love creating the story for Apocalypse World is, is an example. I, I love playing in that game. I love running it. But I believe that I can do a better job than most people I know at running that game. So I would want to have kind of that position. I don't like putting other people in the position to make um, GM decisions if they're not comfortable with it. Right. And so I just I think I'm really good uh, at Apocalypse World. Right. But there's other games that I'd just rather be a player. I mean, Dresden Files is an example. Uh, Kevin Weiser runs a fantastic Dresden Files game. And I really enjoy getting to experience um, kind of a world out of my control where the GM right. has a bit more control. Right. And, and so I, I just I think it depends what, what kind of game I'm in and what kind of mood I'm in. Right. So going along with that question, mm-hmm. and it's an idea that just sort of occurred to me, which is... Um, your role-playing equivalent of your final supper before uh, execution, what would you play? Ooh. Well, let's see. It's my last night on Earth. I have one role-playing game left to play. Yes. 
I would want to play a good game of fucking free market. <laughs> oh, Can I swear on your podcast? I'm sorry. You already have. Okay. Good. Yeah. No. If if I if I could do one thing, I want to play free market well, and and that's it. Because I've done I've played other games that I've loved, and if I only have a few minutes left on this earth, I want to make sure it's something interesting. I mean, actually, a, an interesting little uh, tidbit for you. I've had a near death experience. Right. And so I had that, uh, I had like a 5% chance of survival and I totally had that last minute conversation with myself of, well, you're totally only going to die once. How do you want to experience these next couple moments? Right. Yeah. And so if I, if I could die in that moment and look back, I'd want to be able to say I'd played free market and I played it well. There you go. Straight from the horse's mouth. So when you are a uh, GM, Mm -hmm. uh, what sort of preparation do you do? That also, it really depends on the game. What I like to make sure that I have is notes about the characters. Uh, my favorite way to start a game is to have one session that is character creation. And so then I have a week, let's say, between games where I can right. look over the world that was created, the character sheets that were created. Right. And I don't like going into a story already knowing how it's going to end. Right. And so I like to just go in with a few ideas and... Right things that I can kind of leap to if put in a position, you know, here's a monster I can use or mm-hmm. here's a couple NPCs I want to throw in. Right. But I want to go in with an open mind. Right. Okay, well, I've got to, I've, this is the, you'll be pleased or perhaps feel some trepidation. No, this is the first time that uh, somebody's been the complete opposite of me for two things in the same sentence. Oh. Um, but the first one is, um, is uh, having a session just dedicated to uh, to character development. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the like I, I'm I'm with you in terms of like I don't want to have too much um, tied down to stuff. Like in, in my book, I advocate um, for your people just starting out, just have a rough idea of where you want your story to finish, and then. Um, then you've got a sort of an idea of an arc by looking at your, what your players are interested in, and then mm. and then you've sort of got a. I mean, you may diverge, you may end up at that end point, but just having a destination in mind at least at least sets you up, and then you know, set up your villains to to counteract what the players want to do, and then develop your drama from that. But one of the one of the things that I um, I always found frustrating as a player, and maybe you'll be able to turn me around on this, is um, that when you go along and you're really jazzed about playing a game. Um, and you make up your character, and it's really cool, and then the GM goes, okay, and that's it for this week. To next week, we're going to actually start to play. And in my book, I give the analogy, it's kind of like saving up for a Ferrari, taking the Ferrari, and then putting it in the garage and not driving it. Yeah. Well, okay, for one thing, we don't, we don't just quit after character creation. Right. Um, no matter what we're playing, whether it's included in kind of the game rules or the game style or not, what I usually will do is we do character creation. Everybody talks a little bit about their characters. They, we start initiating conversations of history. Did they know each other before? Because um, one of the things I really advocate for my my table is the whole fear of metagaming is ridiculous and needs to go away. Yes, yeah. And, and so people talk about ideas of, you know, things that other characters wouldn't know, but it's fun to the other players to be able to kind of bounce off of. Sure. And then a lot of times we'll do like a small encounter or kind of a small introduction scene. Oh, for sure, yeah. And, and okay, just well, then I'm back get... on board. I'm, okay, I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> you just you get those juices flowing, and I find yes. too that players enjoy 
um, like if you give them things to think about over the next week, like, okay, yes. so we know where our characters are. Yes. Um, we know we're going to be doing such and such delve and yeah. dungeon delve or whatever. Yes. That yes. gives them days to kind oh, of yeah. sit down and think. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely on board. Yeah. I'm not advocating a full session. I'm just saying like just a little bit just so they can take the characters out for a spin, try yes. their voices on for size, t- take a look at these relationships and then give them something to, for their minds to sort of run over mm-hmm. in anticipation for the week to come. So you don't start cold. So yes. Okay. All right. Yep. So there's, there's, we will agree. We can agree there, fortunately. Um, why, and I forget exactly what the other thing was that uh, that I was on the opposite uh, end of the scale with there from your first statement. So I guess it can't have been anywhere near as important as the uh, as the doing something in the, in the first session. Perhaps it'll come back to me. So, okay. um, what's your perfect number to role play? And we'll assume this is the number of players, and then it's plus one for the GM. Okay, I'd say four. Right. Um, yep. For any game that I, I play, four is totally workable. Five gets a little tricky because that's a lot of voices to try to listen to. Mm. And if you think about how much time you have to game, so let's say, you know, my, my typical games last between two and four hours, depending on the night we're playing and who's working in the morning. Sure. And so if you only have four hours and yes. you have five players, their time is getting pretty reduced over yes. that that two hours or four yes, hours. Absolutely. Mm. And that kind of goes into the type of game that you run as well, right? Like if yep. you're a game that likes to be reactive to the, to the players um, and the char- their characters' goals and what it is that they're interested in, then making sure that you've got enough time to give everybody a fair shake during that, that game session um, is definitely a, a logistical concern, right? You need to make sure you're not got, you've got so many people that mm-hmm. you can't, you know, you can't give anybody an adequate amount of um, face time. Right? Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think mean, uh, I'm, I'm on the same page with that one as well. Like, ideally three, but I find that four just builds in that, you know, if somebody's away type type situation. Lenny uh, was saying in uh, episode 16 that he's um, that he likes to have three players and have a. Um, an alternate game set up for a situation where one of them can't be there because having having three people you know, creates that nice dynamic. But mm-hmm. if, as soon as you go down to two, it changes the whole the whole face of things. Is that something similar that, that you do? Like, do you guys, if you've got fewer than than three, then you you won't play? Well, I guess we're pretentious hippie assholes, and so <laughs> is there any other kind? Uh, maybe I'm not sure. <laughs> I haven't met many, but um, yeah, I just we. We kind of see our game as we're dedicated to the story and where the story's at. Right. So if people can't make it, I don't like the idea of saying, "Okay, they're gonna, you know, be silent and stare in the corner." Right. For for the you know for the remainder of the four scenes or whatever it is, I like to make sure that they're all included. And the beauty of playing indie games uh, and games that you can just pick up for a one shot here and there. Sure. We totally will just replace. Like uh, last weekend, we couldn't do. Um, Apocalypse World. Right. And so we're like, well, uh, what can we do? Uh, how about we throw in a one-shot game of Dogs and Vineyard, which right. just happens to be another Vincent game. But So that's what we did. We called somebody else to see if they could make it who wouldn't normally be there on our game nights. And right. we had a fantastic game of Dogs and Vineyard, and then this week we'll pick back up with Apocalypse World. Right. And the beauty, actually, with Apocalypse World and that kind of scenario is Vincent wrote in uh, this concept of love letters, which is if it's been a little while since your last game, you can have them do an additional role which helps build on the story and move things forward. Right. Yeah, I think that um, Karen in episode two was, was talking a little bit about that, and, and I need to uh, have another go at uh, Dogs in the Vineyard. I, I seem to recall only having a, 
sort of touching on it very briefly. Um, and it sounds like something that I would uh, something that I would, something that I would enjoy. I need to, to follow up on. So, oh man, I I will definitely recommend Dogs in the Vineyard to anybody, especially if you're interested into interested in like social conflicts, um, right. religious ideals, things like that. It is a fantastic game to get people riled up. Does it require a particular type of GM? No, it doesn't actually require a particular type of GM, but having someone who is familiar with religious principles, either on the atheist side or on the religious side. I've never had, man, I'd really love to play a game that had like a Christian or a Mormon running Dogs in the Vineyard. It'd be a totally different game. Right. Um, but you, you, all you really need is a GM who's willing to push people's boundaries on, on kind of the social norms and, and what's expected of uh, classes and, and, and genders. Right. Okay, well, that sort of plays a little bit into the next couple of questions I've got for you. The first one of which is, should males play females? Well, I don't see why not. <laughs> um, did you have a follow-up there? Or was that just the... No, no, no. Should, should males play females? And you can take that either way. Um, either males should play females uh, or mm-hmm. should they play females? Okay. I'm, I'm not in the business of determining what other people consider fun or telling other people what they shouldn't and should not try. What I can say is that I like playing with people who are open to new ideas and are willing to try new experiences. Um, and I have a lot of fun playing with people who are playing a gender opposite of, of what they actually are. Right. Um, that said, I think that there shouldn't be a stigma attached to males playing female characters. And I really hope that there's more males who play female characters that are more than just boobs. <laughs> yeah, that, that's part of where that question came from. Yeah, because I, I think there is that tendency. Um, I mean, I remember my first D&D game. It was total giggle territory every time we talked about the female elf's armor, you know, right. which was not being played by me. Actually, my, my first character in D&D was a male character. Right. Um, because I think that if I couldn't get respect as a 16-year-old female, maybe my, you know, 31-year-old ranger male would get some sort of respect, which is utterly ridiculous, but that's what I did nonetheless. Right. And did that work out for you? You know, it did, actually. I think that I had a more interesting time, and it was less easy for the people that I was playing with to see me as just just the other girl or just the female character. Right. Um... Nowadays, there's some really interesting games that deal with gender. Uh, gender. Kagumatsu, uh, or Kagumatsu, I can't remember how to pronounce that one. That one deals with um, geishas and your samurai, and it's played with three males, each who play a female geisha, and one female player who plays the male samurai. Right. And, and that does some really interesting kind of gender play, and, and, and makes you start asking questions about why do I want to play a particular gender over another gender. Right. Part of that question also um, is, as a female GM, um, you know, I think that women in gaming, are, and it may not necessarily be true for, for your group, but um, I think at Gen Con, I think it was uh, one girl, two guys, or thereabouts, about 33%. Um, mm-hmm. females. And while about 33% of gamers are females, I think probably even fewer proportionally are GMs. Has that been your experience? Yeah, that's totally my experience. Um, and I still get kind of weird looks from people when I tell them that I'm GMing a game. It just, it takes them by surprise. And 
I, I'm not shocked or upset by that. I think that people deserve to be a little surprised to see a female GM because, for the most part, their experience with female gamers are they're either quiet and they sit at the table and don't play because they're there with their boyfriend. Right. Or they're too loud and too over the top because they feel like they need to get attention. Right. Uh, I, I think those stereotypes are are going away as we get more game or girls who are into gaming. Uh, but it's it's still a stereotype that we have to deal with. And and having that concept of a, a strong, um, intelligent, competent woman running a game kind of takes people off guard sometimes. And. One of the, the sort of supplemental questions that goes along with that is, and it's not necessarily something that I believe, but I'm curious to hear what, uh, what you've got to say, is that when you're playing uh, a character, you know, t- to one extent or another, you're sort of experiencing what it's like to be that character, or at least you should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are a male playing a female and you've got a male GM, are you able to appreciate or get anything out of playing a female if the GM is not able to relate to you in an authentically female way? That is a really interesting question. I think that... I mean, I've had the experience where playing a male character as a female with a, a male GM, or, or even a female GM, they will still treat your character on occasion like the gender that the player is because that's where the words are coming from, that's where the actions are coming from, and it's difficult for people to to separate what they're seeing with their eyes versus what they're understanding with, you know, the story side of their brain. Sure. Um, and, and though I do think it's possible for people to, to genuinely relate a GM to a character, um, whether it be a female character by a male player or vice versa... I think that you will always have some amount of, of difficulty with GMs dealing with it in a genuine way. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. There's no easy, there's no easy answer for it. I was just curious to know if you'd if you'd had any uh, if you'd had any thoughts about about that particular aspect of the game. Because the the follow up to that follow up is, uh, do you think that there's genuine catharsis available um, through role playing? I do. I, I absolutely do. I. I think it's tricky and it's a dangerous, slippery slope that makes me a little nervous. Um, because it, ha- having to re- having to rely on anything for release or for you know returning to sanity or mental health, um, I, I think it's dangerous. Having it as something that you do for fun, uh, you know, just to kind of add some creativity to your life, I think that's totally awesome and and completely sane and normal. Right. And, and so I don't, I don't recommend gaming for catharsis, but I recommend gaming and maybe getting some catharsis in the process. Right. So some that goes in with the bargain because if you're going on that kind, of, you're trying to go on that type of journey um, in the game, then to a degree it requires buy-in from the other players as well, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're yeah. hijacking the story to work through your you know, your issues with your boss or whatever it might happen to be. It mm-hmm. requires buy-in from everybody else in the game, not least the, the game master. Exactly, yeah. And and I, I, I am definitely one of those people that believes everyone at that table should be on the same page. That's partly why I believe that this concept of metagaming is ridiculous and outdated and needs to go. Because you're sitting at a table with a group of people, not characters, actual people, mm. who have their own personal issues, life stuff that's going on, you know, work, job, school, all this stuff. 
Um, and you have to take the whole person. You can't just take the character that they're playing. Because if you don't like the people you're playing with, there's no point in playing with them. That's well, another problem I actually had with the Camarilla LARP, is most people hated each other, but they liked the characters. And that's... Right. that's I mean, if you're going to sit at a table with someone for four hours, you gotta you got to like who you're gaming with. you got to be interested. And so... But on the other side of things, since you're sitting at a table with friends, you should be able to get your catharsis and work out your boss issues in, in a way that doesn't impact everyone else's fun. Do you think then that women GMs have a... They don't necessarily have the market cornered, but do you think that, there's, that women GMs are perhaps intrinsically more empathic? And so, for example, somebody's having a bad day, and you can make their day a little better by having something good happen for their character that you that, that a woman GM is more likely to pick up on that? Ooh, that's a really interesting question too. I like your questions. These are good. <laughs> um, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm a scientist at heart. I don't, I don't believe in empathy per Well, I don't believe that women know something special or can see something special. Are we trained to pick is that up? Right? Yeah, no, I don't. My wife tells me consistently. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Well, <laughs> being in a relationship is a little bit different, though, because then at least they get to see you all the time and they can right. make better judgments. But sure. No, I, I honestly think it has to do with the fact that women are trained from very young ages to pick up on social cues more than men are. We have to be aware of what's going on around us um, more than more than guys can. Is that fair? I don't know. Is it true? I'm pretty sure it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think having a chick as a GM, she's going to have a, a better... She's going to have a better possibility of, of picking up on what you're not saying, maybe. Right. But she shouldn't have to. I mean, no. you're sitting with people at a table who are friends. You should just have the balls to say something about it instead of assuming that since you have a vagina as a GM, they'll just know. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it, it works in both directions, as you say. Yeah. Um, and going back to what you were saying before um, about spending time with people doing something you love but not liking, that's into the sort of geek social fallacies territory, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, that concept of – I mean, I'm pretty sure every gamer that I know has been in a gaming group where they just didn't like someone who was there but no one wanted to say anything to them. And I, I understand the plight of the socially awkward nerd. I've been there. I'm still there at times. Um, it, it, it's, it's tricky to learn what you're supposed to say when you're supposed to say it. And the last thing any nerd wants to do is take away someone else's nerd fun, you know? Right. But I, I think that's why we need to grow as gamers. And I think that's why games like White Wolf are, are troublesome is because it doesn't teach people anything about social contracts. It doesn't teach people anything about how to interact with each other. And that's why I love a lot of these indie kind of narrative based games so much is, it requires you to get on the same level with the other players. And it teaches you social skills that gamers don't get in a lot of other places. Right. And how do you, uh, along those lines, how do you reconcile the fact that, for the most part, role-playing games are intrinsically social, and yet the stereotype of the role-player is the socially inept individual that you know chugs out of a two-liter bottle of Coke and wears a trench coat in the middle of summer and, and eats Cheetos and doesn't, you know, shower. How, how, does, how do you reconcile that stereotype with, uh, you know, the fundamental base of role-playing? I think what it has to do with is people like community that accepts them. Right. 
and and gamer communities for the most part uh, are very accepting, and so they'll they'll put up with people who wear trench coats in the middle of you know the summertime, and, and they'll put up with people who don't brush their teeth or comb their hair because they know what it's like to be uncomfortable or are not accepted. Right. And so, and then you have kind of this, what am I trying to say here? It sounds like you're trying to say that we should feel free to shun people like that, like everybody else has. Well, yeah, I do. I I absolutely think that we should be able to say as, as a gamer or as just a person, um, Hey, how about you brush your teeth? You know, hey, how about you comb your hair? Or hey, what's going on in your life that that you're you're feeling like this? Or you're you know, I just I think people are too scared to actually interact with each other anymore, and and that's where a lot of this comes from. Right. That um, when I was talking with uh, Lenny on the previous episode, one of the ideas I was I was floating was that a lot of these stereotypes crystallized way back in the early days of role playing. Mm-hmm. And and I wondered whether perhaps that was due to the fact that role playing sort of morphed out of wargaming, mm-hmm. and wargaming is a very you know is very strictly delineated rules and tends to appeal to a certain type of person. And I wonder if there's the overlap between that type of uh, you know the overlap is that you know that type of person went from playing doing you know war games to doing Dungeons and Dragons, and then that that idea of like the bookish nerd um, sort of followed over from that. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're totally right. I think that has a, a big part to play in why people see gamers the way that they, you know, they stereotype them. What, what's amazing to me, and, and maybe I'm just on the outskirts of circles now, but most of the gamers that I deal with these days are hipsters, honestly. Right. And, you know, they're making money on Kickstarter. They're doing awesome, amazing projects. The, the people that I see as my gamer heroes are, like, actual people that I, I care about what they're doing because they've embraced other aspects of their life that are creative and interesting and that gives them rewards. Right. And then they pass that on to kind of their gaming circles and what they're putting into the gaming community. And so... When I think of gamer, I don't think of Dorito munching, Mountain Dew chugging, Reese's Pieces nomming people anymore. I think of, you know, skinny jeans and people, like, having creative poet slams. It's kind of ridiculous, but that's just how I see it nowadays. Right. Did you happen to see that delicious picture of the, uh, the ultimate hipster on the internet uh, this week? The chap sitting at the, uh, at, the, at the table having a beer in the middle of the day with his legs crossed and he's got this tiny little portable, <laughs> portable record player on the table next to him? I have, And his yes. vintage jacket, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was brilliant. That, that, yeah, that's totally how I see gamers nowadays. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I wonder what the proportion is now like if I'm, I'm trying to think about looking around Gen Con. And I saw an awful lot of ordinary-looking people, and I didn't have to move away from something I was interested in for, from uh, because of uh, smell problems um, mm-hmm. the whole time I was there. So, um, do you think that there is like I mean, in your your circles, I should say, there's a lot more hipsters that are interested in in game than there are some of these um, stereotypical gamers. But do you think overall it still attracts the same type of person, or is gaming in general, the perception of it also shifting? Well, no, I, I honestly think what's happening is to some degree, 
people who we would have normally seen as these kind of grognard, and I'm using that in the most adorable and lovable way, um, the, these type of kind of gamers that everybody thinks of, I think some of those gamers are transitioning and growing from the games that they're experiencing and turning into, you know, hipsters or, you know, someone who showers more often or things like that. So I think, I think that's part of it. Right. Um, this this community, this gaming moves, movement is not that old. It hasn't been around for that long. And it's beautiful to be able to be living in a time where we can see how gaming is changing. Right. And so I, I hope that it's not pushing people away. I'm not saying that we should not be ex- accepting of people's differences and challenges and um, social awkwardness. I, I think we should absolutely, absolutely be accepting of those things, but we should be nurturing them too. Right. And, and so my hope is we're seeing more normal people because, A, it's less scary um, than it used to be, and, B, maybe people who have started out socially awkward are finding their own selves in gaming and becoming stronger and more self-aware and more self-confident. Right. And as a, a woman in gaming, um, one of the stories along with having a terrible first experience of role-playing, um, another common thread that I've picked up along the way is that uh, girls were often not allowed to role-play. Um, is mm-hmm. that something that uh, that you've not? You, well, evidently, you have not personally experienced that. But is that something you've heard girls say? Satine Phoenix, episode uh, fourteen, was saying, and you know, she runs a, a thing called D and D Melt, which is on Sunset Boulevard in, in Los Angeles, and and she's a GM and kind of organizer of the whole thing. And she's found a lot of women coming in and being attracted to that gaming group. One because there's another woman in charge, but mm-hmm. uh, but two because the, the GM. Uh, is also a woman, and they've ex- sort of shared these stories of being told that they weren't allowed to play with their brothers or their their, their friends, or um, being allowed to play under sufferance, and then having their characters killed right away. Is that something you've that uh, you've heard from other people? Oh yeah, and it is something that I've experienced to some degree myself. I mean, when I first wanted to play D and D, it was kind of a joke. Yeah, I think no one was really expecting anything interesting out of me. And so I was always kind of relegated to the the sideline or I, you know, I had to really push to speak up to get my character added into something. I don't think it was intentional. I I think it's just my entry into gaming happened when I was 16 and the people that I was playing with were between 16 and 18. Right. And so I just, I was young and naive and I had stupid, ridiculous ideas to some extent. Um, would they have treated a guy my age coming to the table differently? I don't know. Um, probably, yeah. And and I've been had I've had experiences where um, I've been told that I couldn't play a guy character. I had to play a chick because it was quote easier for the GM to remember. <laughs> Did you have to is, wear a chainmail bikini as well? I, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I don't know that this whole issue of gender and gaming just it honestly kind of bothers me on some level because I feel like we shouldn't have to talk about it. I feel like it it, sh- it should be a non-issue, but in right. fact it is an issue. I mean, yes. I have I, I know girls who come to me and say, "How do you, how do you get you know how do you get into a game? How do you play a game?" And I'm like, "Well, I just ask. You just have to push your way in." And the fact is, I'm a pushy, pretentious asshole, like I said, and I've always made myself important in a game. I've always, I've always on my own tried to make sure that it happens and maybe I've just gotten lucky. Right. Um, but yeah, it's all, I don't know. It's all, you always get this kind of weird feeling of do I, do I belong here? Am I supposed to be here? Are they treating me differently? And I just honestly try to ignore a lot of that and just push through and 
hope to pick up on cues to know kind of what's expected of me. Um, and I try to push other people's boundaries to make sure that I'm getting what I want out of that time because it's my time. It's important right. to me. Right. And one of the uh, – you know, I've, I've said before that, you know, the best day of uh, my life, at least along these lines, is the day that I don't have to go to the gay pride parade <laughs> for, for, that, for that exact same yeah. reason. Exactly. Like, that it shouldn't be an issue. I shouldn't. I shouldn't have to show my support for um, for people by having a parade for. Like, is there a parade for straight people? Is yeah. there a, is there a parade for lawyers? Is there a parade for people that like to, you know, read books by Stephanie Meyer? There's none of these parades. Why do I have to go to a parade? Yeah. Uh, where there are where for, for gay people, or transgender, or queer, or questioning, or, or whatever it might happen to be, and and that's the same thing with robbing. It shouldn't be. It's frustrating mm-hmm. that it, that it's an issue, and yeah. and and bizarrely, you know, there's that social contract we have. You know, that the geek social fellows where we've got to be nice to people. Why why can't we extend that to girls? Why yeah. is why do we have to have a second like it? And it just and I don't know whether it's just human nature that. You know, we like to try and segregate ourselves, even though from an evolutionary standpoint, if we can be biology nerds for a second, it makes mm-hmm. no sense whatsoever to exclude yourself from females if you want to, you know, pass your genes on in, in the, from yeah. generation to generation. Like, why don't we want to have more girls? Yeah. You know, yeah. Why do we not want... And so I just, I, I can't get my head around it, much much like yourself. Um, and, and again, going to, to gender issues a little bit, but more tangentially, uh, Sean in episode four and I were sort of thrashing out this idea that, that at one end of the, of the gaming um, spectrum, you've got you know, war games, heavy strategy, emulation-type games. And mm-hmm. at the other end, you've got um, theatre sports or improv. And mm-hmm. we uh, sort of, by the end of it, would sort of come to this conclusion that if it, had, if it hadn't started, gaming, role-playing hadn't started at the war gaming end, uh, then it would have started at the improv end. And if it had started at the improv end, then two-thirds of gamers would be women and yeah. one-third would be, would be men. How do, you, how do you feel about that idea? No, I, I totally agree with it. I think because in an improv community, you have um, generally more uh, open-minded, uh, creative-style people who have to accept new and different people into the group, and it's a benefit to them because in an improv group, if you have a variety of people, you're going to be more interesting. You'll have a better chance of having, you know, neat skits and stuff like that. Sure. And so, and so they are by nature accepting the wargaming crowd. Most of those guys are trying to get away from their wives in the basement, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it is. It's, it's Don't a little tell bit them where more... we go. Yeah, exactly. This is, what's the secret password? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, I, I, yeah, I absolutely, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Cause I, I totally agree. If it would have happened a different way, we'd be facing maybe different struggles mm. than we are right now. But to, to go back a step, um, and talking about gender and, and transgender and stuff, one of the best moments I ever had at my gaming table was just recently. And it was because one of the players decided to play a, an openly transgender character right. and no one even blinked an eye. It was right. totally accepted, and it's been an interesting add-on to the story, right. and not a weird way. It's it, it's they dealt with it perfectly, and that's when I knew I'm gaming with the right group. Right. Anyway. No, that, I, I yeah. I mean, it sounds it sounds ideal. The fact that nobody bats an eye, like it's that same idea where you know we shouldn't have to talk about gender issues. We shouldn't yep. have to march in the gay pride parade. You know, we shouldn't. You know, all the things that we shouldn't have to do if we were sane human beings, but there just aren't enough of us around. Um, yeah. So. 
next question is, is there anywhere that you won't go as a GM? Well, as of today, I won't go to North Carolina. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, as, as, no, what we do, we always have a discussion on lines and veils. So I will never go beyond someone's line. Right. Um, which, are you familiar at all with the concept of lines and veils? Yeah, that's um, the sorcerer guy, Edwards. Um, Ron Edwards. Ron Edwards, right. Mm-hmm. Yep, and it's, I, I think it's great. It's basically we sit down every game that we play, for the most part, if we're playing with people we've already played with frequently, uh, we won't need to, but sure. it's, it's part of that building a social contract with the people you're playing with. We, right. we find out you know, what works for them, what doesn't work for them. Um, are there things that make them really uncomfortable? I have one person that I play with who is completely not okay with uh, the idea or having a, a, a child in jeopardy. Right. in the game that makes them uncomfortable. So it doesn't even come into the game. We don't even sure. you know, look at it. Uh, be- beyond people's lines and veils, I have, I'm an adult who plays games, and so I've had stories that have involved you know, rape, torture, incest, murder. Um, if, if it makes sense for the story and if you yes. don't push it beyond people's, people's lines, I will right. totally go there. Right. But those are the things you draw a veil over, right? Or yeah, yeah, generally. Story. Yep, I one time I didn't veil a torture a torture scene, and I just went on to see how long I could push everyone else. Right, <laughs> and uh, totally ended up getting a, a line pulled on me. So that was a, a fun experience. That's but, a that's a delightful uh, delightfully evil laugh you just gave there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, the um, yeah, that's not. I, I haven't really. Um, I've been very fortunate in as much as the gaming groups that I've played with have been pretty static. Um, and I guess in some ways that's not ideal because, like we were talking about, you know, the improv and having more people creates different perspectives and can add something to your game. But in others, that consistency, not actually having to bang up against those, you know, lines um, is something that I haven't really had to, to deal with. You know, sit down and talk about you know, lines and vowels, a totally, totally separate group. Mm. Um, so, and is that conversation, um, can that be a deal breaker though? Uh, the conversation itself? Well, no, well, I mean, the conversation goes about lines and veils, and then somebody says, this is my line, and then everybody goes, well, that's going to make the game suck. I don't want to play anymore. Maybe not in those words, but that's what they're thinking. Yeah, and I've never had it come up because I'm really picky about who I add to my games these days. Right. And, and I really, I really, 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 I can't say this enough, really believe in playing with people that you like. Sure. And if people cannot tell you what they're comfortable with or not comfortable with, or if they're going to pull up a veil that's just utterly ridiculous, um, then I don't I don't need to play with them. So it's never been a huge problem. Um, we've had a few joke uh, kind of lines and veils, like uh, you can veil Monty Python jokes, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I've never. I I have a pitch that I give people when I talk about lines and veils. And I'm very serious about it because I believe I believe in creating a social contract, and I use those words when I sit down with people. Right. You know, I, and, and and as long as you tell them, hey, this is serious. This is us adults playing an adult game. Mm. We want to know what's going to work for the story. If people don't take that seriously, um, or or if they throw you know a, a veil or a line that uh, makes the story really difficult, then maybe they just shouldn't be playing that game. Yeah, like, for sure. 
to play dogs in the vineyard and to pull a line on, say, Christianity means that maybe you need to talk to your group and play a different game. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, or, or yeah. step out for that game, right? Because it wouldn't be unfair to stop everybody else playing it because you didn't, you didn't want to. Yeah, no, and I have done that. I have started a game and then switched to a different game after kind of getting a player's feels. It was a three sixteen game, uh, which is kind of your Space Marines kind of murder style stuff. Right. Uh, you know, you head out, you murder the alien species, and you're big, tough, like, commandos. And we had started a game. One of the people was not comfortable with warfare and decided that they were going to play uh, a hippie, peace-loving kind of soldier. Weird. Which is screwed. I mean, it screwed everybody else's ideas. Yeah, and so yeah. All, all we did is we had a conversation, you know, about five minutes in when I start getting a feel for what she wanted to play. I was like, well... I don't know if that's going to fit with the kind of story that we want to build. How do you guys feel about maybe swapping over to a game that might work better? Uh, and, and most people are usually open and free for that. And if that wouldn't have worked out, I would have simply just had her watch, um, right, right. which I hate. I absolutely hate the concept of a woman at the table not playing right. just because I feel like, you know, we need to represent. <laughs> sure, for sure. Yeah. So do you or should GMs fudge roles? Ah, man. Okay. The answer really depends on the game. I know that's totally my answer to everything, but I believe that every game should be treated differently based on, you know, what the intentions of the game are. If you have dice rolls that don't matter what their what the response is, then don't don't even do a roll for it. I mean that's probably why Apocalypse World was cool. If if you do it and I don't think that there's gonna be a problem, I just don't roll. I don't have to fudge a dice roll. And if I'm playing in a game where the dice roll matters and a character's life is in the balance, hopefully we're all on the same page that that's okay and exciting. So my my real answer is is no. I should never have to fudge the dice. If I'm going to roll them, they should matter, both narratively and within the system. Right. Okay, so what's the best and or most inspiring role-playing film or TV show? It doesn't have to be about role-playing, but something you watch and went, man, that's really cool. I want to put that in a game, or I want to play a game that's set there right now. Uh, Carnival, a thousand times Carnival. <laughs> I want a game based off of this TV show so bad. It was a HBO TV show from several years ago that was set in the Dust Bowl Depression era, but it also had this kind of mysticism and magic added right. into it. Right. And it's, it's basically Deadlands, and I absolutely love it. I, I would give my left arm probably for a Carnival game. Right. Well, that probably plays a little bit into um, the, another question I've got for you here, which is, if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it be? And that doesn't mean you're going to pick up a book and roll up a character and get to play your favorite game. It means, like, all of a sudden, Jen... Dixon is um, is Mulder in mm-hmm. a uh, Project Twilight game, or is you know a, a fighter uh, in the Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. I would totally be here, Dresden. Resden. Right. <laughs> I absolutely love that character. I, I I'm someone who's like familiar with uh, you know grief and sadness and frustration, and so those are tenants that I'm familiar with. I don't want them to leave my life, and I think that Harry Dresden gets fucked over so much that I could totally connect with him. <laughs> right. And is the magic a big part of that or no? Yeah. I, the, the concept of urban magic is one of my absolute favorites. Right. And so this idea of being this troubled, struggling uh, magician slash, you know, mage 
uh, trying to make sense of, of, of two different worlds and trying to walk the line between two different worlds. It, it sounds like a fascinating and awesome life, and in the end, he always wins, so that is where I'd want to be. Right. And going back to uh, your experiences with White Wolf to start with, did you ever play Wraith? I didn't play Wraith. A couple of people have asked me that. No, I haven't. Um, it sounds really interesting. <laughs> yeah, because that game, in hindsight now, is one of the first, at least mainstream, um, games where you actually had to have cooperation between the people playing the characters. Because are you familiar with the concept of the shadow? Yeah, yeah. Right, and, and that sort of that requires that... that um, trust between players with regards to their characters mm-hmm. right and, and up until that point I hadn't ever seen that employed in any type of game where you know another character another player would would at all intents and purposes play your uh, play your character or play against you mm-hmm. um, and I wonder if now that people are more familiar with this or at least they're more mainstream um, this idea of the story games and like the theatrics and and you know uh, did apocalypse I keep wanting to call apocalypse world deadlands um, apocalypse world and that sort of thing where you get the the characters kind of like playing off each other um, mm-hmm. coming into conflicts but with a good story in mind whether that idea and that game might now be more popular you know like the wrong sort of just the right idea but just at the wrong time yeah that and that sounds really really cool to me because. At the time that that game was out, there is absolutely no way I would have handled it. There's no way that I would have liked it because I just didn't have the mindset to be able to handle that character interplay, the, the, the players bouncing off of each other, having impact. Um, now, now that I understand that and I've kind of done this transition to a more narrative-style gamer, I definitely want to go back and try it because it sounds like it might have been one of the first of its kind to really do something a little bit different. Yeah, oh yeah, and, and sure. that's Yeah, and that's absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, you know that those games were out there a little bit, and it, it might just be an example of sometimes people are a little ahead of their times and they just have to wait until the masses are ready, you know? Yeah, because I always wanted to play that game, but I never got a chance to, uh, I never got a chance to play it. I only, because I, I jammed um, World of Darkness or Storyteller or whatever the, right way to make the references mm-hmm. um and i always I, I really like the backstory of of wraith so i always included that but mm-hmm. i never got a chance to actually play it straight up where mm-hmm. you know i got to have that whole experience with the, with the shadow and i think maybe that's something i'd like to go back and, and investigate particularly maybe with a group of people that are uh, that are ready for that sort of mm-hmm. interplay between the, the players and creating a good story yeah and it's funny because I actually hear a lot about people recently going back and playing games that they had heard of um, or maybe didn't do the, quote, right way when they were younger mm-hmm. or right. earlier in their gaming careers. And, like, Luke Crane, uh, I believe he's going all nutso over uh, D&D's third edition right now. I can't remember which one. Um, and so to hear, hear people who have been in this indie community and then they've gone back and looked at games and they just see it in a different way because they've had new experiences is just so, like, fascinating and awesome to me. You, there's all this inspiration still out there with old stuff, and we don't have to hate where we came from. You know, we don't have to hate what it was. We can go back and embrace it for the good things that it did for us and move on. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, and the idea of this sort of like old school uh, renaissance, uh, the question that I went along with that is I wonder whether this, this, this movement was inspired by 4th um, edition. People played 4th edition and said, you know what, I want to do 
this, that, and the other thing. This has really reminded me of what I really liked about you know, mm. first edition um, Dungeons and Dragons. And you get these retro clones and uh, games like Labyrinth Lord and so forth that are mm-hmm. that are sort of part of this part of this new cycle, this renaissance, if you will. Okay, so I, I understand why the nostalgia might be bringing people back a little bit because. I, I don't like D&D anymore. It's not my game. Um, most D20 games that have kind of a strict GM control style aren't aren't really my bag. Right. But D&D 4th Edition, I could play and enjoy for a little while because it, it is all the things that D&D is kind of boiled down into something succinct and solid. Right. And, and, and that did for a few minutes make me kind of all blurry-eyed for my old D&D days, uh, and I forgot all the horrible shit that went down and, and just focused on those good few good moments. Right. And, and sometimes having something new that reminds you of, of the, the past will make you want to go back, you know? Right. But I, I don't... I don't think this old-school kind of renaissance is, is really what most people are, are seeing it or claiming it to be. I think what's happening is people are starting to realize that you can accept a game on its on its merits alone or on particular aspects of the game. And if you can understand what the game writers were trying to get at, you can have a better time and you can enjoy yourself. And I don't necessarily pe- think that people really understood that, quote, back in the days. Right. Um, and, and that might be my perspective because my, my D&D game was not actually D&D as it's written. You know, we had the whole morphed world and it was like the GM's concepts and you had to like write up a four page character background before you could even get approval to play in the game. Um, So it it was, it was different than traditional, but, and I think a lot of people had that kind of experience of where you, you morphed the game, you met, you forced D and D into this mold that it wasn't so that you could have fun with it. Right. And so going back and saying, well, maybe I missed something the first time around, uh, is why I didn't have fun. Maybe I'll go back and, and revisit it and maybe just pull out from it lessons that'll make me better in the long run. Right. And I think that's cool. I think that's a good direction to go. No one has to rewrite D&D 3.5 or any you know other heartbreakers or love letters to 3.5, but you can still totally go back and get something from that past experience. Right. So changing tag completely, sure. who is your favorite villain and why? My favorite villain is Batman. <laughs> okay. I it's it's kind of a joke uh, with some friends of mine who are Batman friends because he Batman's not a good guy, but uh, but he tries anyway. My real favorite villain has got to be a, a Batman villain, and it's Bane. Right. And I'm not talking about the horrible Batman and Robin Bane. Uh, I'm talking about the legitimate Bane from the original comic books. Right. I'm not super familiar with the, the Batman um, mythos or Batman canon, but um, it's interesting you should bring up Batman to start with um, because uh, an idea that I've tried on for size with a few people in recent episodes is that um, the villain in the story depends entirely on the viewpoint for the story. And yep. the example I give is Lex Luthor and Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, if the story were written from Lex Luthor's standpoint, then Superman would be the bad guy and Lex Luthor would be the good guy. Mm-hmm. And that sort of plays with this idea of, um, in my mind, there's sort of three, maybe four different types of villains. Um, the first type of villain and the Lex Luthor type villain is where, as far as he's concerned, everything that he's doing is correct. 
his, his frame of reference or his way of looking at the world is completely justifiable. I'm sorry, his actions are completely justified by the way that he looks at the world. And there's not really any absolute way to say that, he's, that he is wrong. A lot of people say, you know, there's two sides to every story. And it's not an original idea to me, but I feel like there's three sides to every story. There's one person's version based upon their experience and their morals. There's the second person's viewpoint and then there's the truth which lies probably somewhere in between and this idea of truth is so ephemeral that there are so few if any absolute truths and so it's very that that type of villain where you can't absolutely say that they are wrong the only way that you know that they're wrong is because you're looking at Lex Luthor through Superman's eyes Mm -hmm. and that's sort of the the first the first type of uh, villain how do you feel about about that idea yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. I think that the, the quality of a villain is directly related to how they fit into the hero's life. And so you, you have to have this kind of point and counterpoint with a, a, a villain and a hero to make the story interesting. And the more balanced they are, I think the more, the, the more similar they are or close to each other, uh, the better the story is going to be, the more interesting it's going to be, uh, which yes. is, is totally related to, to you saying that it, depending on how you're looking at the story, the, the person that's the villain and the person that's the hero will change. Right. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yep. Right. And then you've got the, uh, the person like the Joker, like uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, that mm-hmm. just wants to burn everything down because they do. You know, they're, they're, they're uh, entropy and incarnate, and everything about they don't like anything about the way the world is, and causing everything to cease to exist as their as their um, as their raison d'être, if you will. And they and, and it's really difficult to um, it's really difficult to empathise with that villain. Whereas uh, when you've got a, a more ambiguous villain, like a Lex Luthor-type character, um, or even a Hannibal Lecter-type character, which is the third sort of one I was going to bring in, where you, know, you can empathise with certain aspects of their, um, of their personality. The, difference that I, the, the distinction I make between uh, Lex Luthor and Hannibal Lecter is that by any moral standards, Hannibal Lecter is clearly immoral. Mm-hmm. Right? Like he has no respect for, for human life, and I don't think there'd be any way to justify, to justify that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the distinction I draw between those two. And then you've got the, the Joker being the third one where it's impossible for you to um, find any common ground with the Joker. Um, he may highlight some interesting aspects about human beings, but at the end of the day, what possible advantage can you get from blowing the world up? I don't know. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because I, the Joker is one of my favorite all-time villains. Uh, B- Bane is just above that. Right. But the reason that I think the Joker is absolutely a beautiful character is because he is so absolutely broken. Right. Um, and and you can look at him and and you can understand that all he's really tr- or at least me I, when I look at the Joker, um, I I realize that all all he really wants is to be able to understand the world and all he's capable of understanding is chaos. And so the easiest solution is to bring the world into your own focus. So to drive the world with chaos will make it understandable for him. Right. I think he's a great villain too, but as a, but as a, um, a counterpoint to your players, Mm -hmm. does, um, 
not being able to identify. I mean, understanding is different to identifying. Not being sure. able to identify with the motivations of the Joker mm-hmm. make them less interesting as a villain because they cease to be, um, they become a force of nature. And they're right. not, you, have to, you can't solve them. It's not possible to solve them. But that's, that's part of the fun because we, we as human beings, on some level, believe that everything is solvable. And so if you throw out a villain like Joker or like a character that they just cannot connect with in any way, it's so absolutely foreign to them that it may be a new, fun, and interesting adventure to try to, to, try to suss out what it means. I mean, the, the tricky thing is with throwing villains into your game is, is making sure that your villains actually have mo- motivations. And even though those motivations are completely alien to the players, they still need to be there. Right. Uh, but like right now, I have a mad scientist character in my Apocalypse World game uh, that is just he's he's beyond human. He's uh, doing like horrible human experiments and like mutating and sewing creatures together, and it's it's pretty brutal and awesome. Um, but the motivations of this of this character is simply he just likes to destroy destroy things, right. um, and they've had fun fig- trying to figure that character out because because for them there isn't. They don't understand why, and they want to pick at it until they do. Right. And that's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about Bane, because I'm not familiar with the character at all. How, Bane, does, how does he fit into those, those three? Well, okay. Where would Bane sit? Bane, I think everyone can relate to Bane on some level. Um, Bane is the one person who ever broke the bat, is what they say. He actually broke uh, Batman's back and... Locked him in a dungeon and made him eat cockroaches for a while. <laughs> um, the concept with him, so you've got Batman who is is possible because of who his father was. Right. Um, and was driven to become the Bat because of what happened to his father. Bane, on the opposite side of the coin, uh, basically served out a prison term because of the sin, serving out this, the sins of his father. Right. And so he grew up from a young age in a very cruel prison, but... Instead of just embracing his cruelty, he was also a villain uh, that devoured every book he could get his hands on. He was meticulous and intelligent. Right. And in the, in the comics, what he did is he decided that he wanted to take over Gotham City because he heard that Batman was the only man that, could not, uh, that he wouldn't be able to beat. And so he decided he'd have to be Batman to prove himself. Right. And in the process, he decided he was going to rule over Gotham. And he actually ends up letting out every character, every villain from uh, Batman's rogues gallery by destroying Arkham Asylum. And uh, after Batman had to take them all on, he ended up breaking his back. But the reason he did it is because he sat and watched how Batman fought all of his previous uh, villains and learned from it. And so I think, I think that people can connect with the motivations of Bane. Um, I think he's a fantastic villain because he's not just brute and he's not just brain. Uh, you get that fantastic mix of both, so it's kind of like the, the unstoppable force. Right. Yeah, I think that people can people identify with... Um, if people can identify with a certain aspect of the villain, like I think everybody wants to be smart. So in that mm-hmm. respect, everybody would be happy to be... Bane, but also, yeah. I guess he sounds like he's physical as well. So everybody likes to would like to be tough. So, mm-hmm. and um, and I guess there is a certain excuse for his behaviour given his uh, given his background. Yeah. So you can totally for well to some extent you can forgive him for the wrongs that he's done to Batman and about Gotham City because you know he's hard. He's had a hard life and uh, he just doesn't know how to handle the world. 
Uh, when, re when in reality, he's just a brutal force that probably would have ended up just as brutal if he had a different upbringing, but you'll never know. That's, that's the whole, that's the beauty, isn't it? So, yeah. And so, changing tack completely, do you have any dice superstitions? I don't. I am... I don't know, logical and reasonable, and I understand that, you know, there's no such thing as superstitions, um, although it's always interesting to see where they come from. Sure. I, w I will say, though, I understand to some extent the science of dice and that there are dice that are going to roll better for you on average uh, because the way that dice are molded and ground down. Right. And so my absolute favorite dice are game science dice. Right. Because uh, they are exquisitely made, and they're almost perfectly random. And so if I had my choice, I'd go with Game Science Dice. But you can blow on my dice. You can lick them. You can touch them. I don't really care. Yeah, yeah I've, got, I've got no dice superstitions either. And, it's, and so, yeah, I already appreciate those Game Science Dice, but also these are casino dice as well. Um, have, you, uh, have you seen the YouTube video of the, the Game Science Dice guy? talking about uh i have and i think I've actually, I've actually seen him giving that pitch as well at oh, uh, cool. at origins as well yeah yeah that um yeah it's pretty interesting stuff i mean <laughs> as interesting as dice can get i guess yeah, maybe exactly. that shows me off as being boring um so what's your elevator pitch for role playing and your go-to example okay so i've been doing a lot of this recently um uh, about nine months ago i stood up in front of about 300 people at a Pekotchka night, which is where you stand up and you have so many minutes and so many slides to talk about a topic of your choosing. And so it's open to all of Des Moines. I got up on stage. There's a YouTube video of it somewhere. And I talked about indie story games because I just, I fucking love them. Like, this is how adults play. Right. And... It, it's a way to feed creativity. It's a way to build your social understanding. It's a way to, um, you know, make friends and build connections. And so many people think of, like, D&D as this thing that 16-year-olds do. And so my pitch, I've actually been talking to people who are, like, local actors or local improv people. Right. To get them convinced that this is a way that you can have fun and practice your trade at the same time. Right. And, and my go-to example actually is fiasco almost all the time. Uh, not only is it the one that I talk about, but it's the one that if I have a chance to throw down a game, which I almost always have a game of Fiasco and Dice in my bag. Right. Uh, so if I have two hours all of a sudden and people who are interested, I can totally throw down a game. Right. Um, but my, the concept I try to convince people is that, you know, forget what you know of games. We're going to sit down for, you know, an hour or so, and we're just going to make a TV show. That's what right. we're going to do. Right. And, and that'll usually get them pretty interested, and it'll break them free of this idea of role-playing. Right. In fact, if I, can, if I can avoid mentioning the word role-playing in the yes. pitch, I will totally avoid it. Right, right. The, um, I, did you uh, read the uh, New York Times article or see any of the, the hubbub about this New York Times article written about Game of Thrones um, Season 2? New York, no, was, I haven't. It was in the New York Times. Um, it was a chap in the New York Times. His name escapes me now. But And it's interesting you should say, like, I'm trying to avoid saying uh, role-playing because I think that as far as, as, far as we've come, um, there's still a lot of that, that stigma, uh, stigma out there. And th I've mentioned it before, but I'd be interested to get your take on it as well. In the context of this article, um, he was saying that if you want... Uh, non-Dungeons and Dragons types to relate to the story, you need to have one main character. Um, and it wasn't so much this idea that, that 
he couldn't handle an ensemble cast, but more that he felt that using the phrase Dungeons and Dragons types uh, mm. had had a real meaning for the readership of the New York Times. I mean, as a, as a journalist, quite apart from whether you um, agree with what it is that he's saying, I'm going to assume that writing for the New York Times, or even this may not be a fair assumption, that he's got some idea about making sure you pitch your stories to your audience. And so by using the phrase Dungeons & Dragons types, amongst the readership of the New York Times, um, that must have some kind of, some kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's, you know, like how long it'll take for that idea to go away or whether we're stuck with it. Because those, the people that understand the phrase Dungeons & Dragons types... Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that are having kids that could presumably be filling up the ranks of, you know, gamers in future. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get away from it. I mean, I still uh, hear about, you know, churches talking about D&D being dangerous, you know. I still see people's kind of momentary flinch when I mention D&D or role-playing. It, it, I think we're just stuck with it for right now, and we need to deal with that. Um, I think that there needs to be better terminology for gaming because it's really tough sometimes to explain what a narrative-based game is without saying, well, think Dungeons & Dragons, but, but let me modify your yes, view a little bit. You exactly. Know? Yeah, that's the frame of reference that you're almost forced to use, right? Yeah, it's, it's, the, court, it's the cultural norm. Everybody knows what Dungeons & Dragons is, whether they have a positive you know, idea of it or a negative idea of it. It's, it's relatable. They know about it. There's been TV. There's been movies. There's books. You know, it's, it's just part of this culture. So get over it. <laughs> you know, find, find a way to say what you want to say and try to figure out references that make sense for what you're doing. I mean, I, I fight really hard to try to explain to people what games are with, while leaving it out, not because I'm ashamed of mentioning the word per se, or it's not really that I'm trying to to get them to not think of Dungeons & Dragons. I'm trying to get them to think about what these games actually represent to me. Right. And the games that I'm playing now have absolutely nothing to do with Dungeons & Dragons. Right. A- at all. Okay. Um, yeah, so... Okay, before I go on to the, the big question, the last question, um, what do you mind sharing any of your experiences in the church and what is being said about Dungeons & Dragons? Role-playing? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I have no problem talking about my church experiences. I grew up a evangelical Baptist, and uh, we, uh, oh, I don't even know where to start. I mean, the, the simple answer is, growing up in an evangelical Baptist church, you, you were given your thoughts, basically. Um, and we had, like, weekly youth group meetings uh, where they'd always have, like, a speaker come in and present, or they'd have a particular top on a topic that they'd talk about. And I remember having um, not one, but maybe three or four different times where a speaker had come in to talk about uh, how Dungeons & Dragons had led them astray. And um, there was one woman who came in, and it was just very serious. And I remember there were people crying because, you know, she was talking about how she was a drug addict and... Uh, when she got really low, a friend had mentioned Dungeons and Dragons and she had played it for a while and she got so good at it that, uh, they introduced her to the quote, real dungeon masters. Right. <laughs> and nice. then, you know, who, who, you know, helped her do like animal sacrifice and right. she found out it was all for the devil. And by that time she was too far in to actually escape. And, um, right. That's the Bob Schnoblin um, yeah. type character, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, and, and I don't know, looking back, if those people were trolls or, yeah. you know, or if they were just like selling, help selling their bullshit. But it makes me really, really mad because I, I grew up basically being told that you can't be creative. Don't come up with new and interesting ideas. Mm. And I honestly think that that's really at the, at, at the crux of why the church hates Dungeons and Dragons and a whole bunch of other things is yeah. because it makes you start thinking. It makes you want to be creative. And, and, and writing a story is one of the best ways to get to know yourself, right. you know, to, to see what you can come up with. And, and that's dangerous for the church. So, yeah, Considering how fringe uh, role-playing is, in hindsight, does it strike you as odd that that would be a lightning rod for the church? No, because I think I think what light, the lightning rods that work for churches are the things that are just off in the distance. Right. You know, it's it's not right here. You know, your kid isn't necessarily playing it right now, so you don't have to be too afraid of it. But somewhere off in the distance, this could be a problem. So if you act now uh, right. and do what Jesus tells you, you can protect your children. Um, so I, no, I, I think those things work really, really well. And it's one of the things that you can't lie to people about what things that they already know about. Like if you know, yes. if, if you know a fact, it makes it really difficult to change people's minds. Right. So if you choose something that you don't have any personal knowledge of, you don't expect to gain any personal knowledge of, and it's not like you're going to, you know, get a, a bulleted list of what Dungeons and Dragons is on your refrigerator. Right. Then, it, then it's easy to say, well, my pastor told me that this is evil, so it must be evil, and then not think about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, something that my, uh, my mother experienced at, uh, at the school that she worked at. I think that, um, yeah, I think that um, the, the secretary must have been a charismatic Christian of some kind. And she, um, yeah, and when my mum, I, I borrowed a, a friend's book to get it photocopied, and when she brought it into the, into the uh, office, the woman recoiled. And said, "There's no way I'm going to be um, photocopying that. I don't want anything to do with anything to do with Dungeons and Dragons." <laughs> and so I, I think that she must have perhaps, um, you know, drank that particular Kool-Aid yeah. as well. But it just, yeah, just the idea that it's a, it was such a lightning rod, I, I found fascinating. And did you watch the 60 Minutes documentary? Oh yeah, about Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I, I don't think I saw it at the time. Although I can't be sure because my father, you did used to watch uh, 60 Minutes. Um, every Sunday, which is when it was on. So I mm-hmm. have a feeling that I might have seen it maybe when it came out. But, um, yeah, it, in hindsight, looking back on that, it just really makes you question any kind of journalism that you see on television because that was so, you know, that was so uh, so biased but so ill-informed, like such a poor yeah. job was done of uh, representing, representing the hobby. And, and being in America, um, perhaps not at exactly that time, but certainly at the tail end, did you, other than... Um, other than from speakers that came around to your group, did, did that filter out into your, the wider community or were you just unaware of what the wider community was about at that point? I, I really didn't have an idea of what the wider community was about at the time. What, what was interesting, though, is I remember having those church meetings and then meeting people in high school who were into D&D and being absolutely horrified and, like, wanting to pray for their souls. I didn't have any actual grasp of what it meant to, to play D&D, but I was told it was evil, so thus, you know, it must be evil, and I was afraid for them. And I tell you, like, I, when I figured out what D&D really was, I felt I was so angry because here's this thing that we're taught to fear, and, and it's a game. Like, it's a stupid game. That's all this is. Right. And if anything led me to kind of uh, push me away from the church farther, it was that kind of discovery of 
how stupid some of the lies are, that, right. that pushed me away. Right. I was actually going to ask if that was a keystone for you, like whether that, once that fell away, then everything kind of uh, crumbled in, but you've, you've answered my question. Yeah. And, and so, um, again, you may not want to ask this question. And so how does the, your, uh, how do you get on with your family regarding um, Dungeons & Dragons now or role-playing, or are they on board now and they just don't tell their pastor or their friends in the church? Or You know, it's a bit tricky. My My family is not a traditional family. Um, like I haven't talked to my father in about a year and if I'm lucky, I probably won't ever talk to him again. And my mom is absolutely adorable. She's still part of the church. Um, she's still in the Baptist community, but I really think she's becoming a pagan and she just doesn't want to admit it. Um, and it's kind of funny because now for, for a long time, it was really tricky. Like when I was younger, I could not neither of my parents could have known that I was out playing Dungeons and Dragons because it would have had seriously bad repercussions. Right. Um, And so I remember lying about where I was just so I could go play a game. Wow. I know it's crazy. Like you got teenage boys hiding, you know, playboys under their mattress. You've got (laughs) the player's guy tucked tucked between the the box spring and and the mattress. That's exactly it. I uh, I had a cover for a book that was about the same size, which was a devotional book, and I had actually cut with a razor blade off the cover of the devotional book and glued it onto my D and D player's guide, <laughs> uh, so nice. I could get away with it. But, yeah. Now, now what's really cool is over the last couple of years, um, I've been a lot more open about who I am to not only my family but my friends and the people around me. Right. And and that has been the best thing that I could ever do because. She she still may shudder at the words D&D, but when I talk to her about, you know, the create creative things that I'm doing, the stories that I'm, that I'm telling or writing, uh, she can get excited about that. So even for her, it, it's, it's just that word. It's just that like ingrained idea of what D&D was that screws her up. It's not, it's not the truth of what's going on. And when she focuses on what's really going on and what I'm really doing, she's happy for me and she's proud of me. So yeah. Good. Yeah, we don't have to call it the same thing, but we can just uh, we, we can agree that the the outcomes are positive. Sure, sure. Okay, so now for the uh, for the final question, the one where you uh, get to show us your uh, gaming credibility, um, totaling one hundred system plus GM plus players. Yeah. See. Oh, okay. So what I did thinking about this is I, I I had written out originally a grid of the different games that I like to play. And how the scores would change for each of them. Right. Because I, I'm not one of those people that believes there's one way to game. I don't no, believe sure. that there's one good game. And even though I like games like Apocalypse World, which are, you know, like, ooh, let's say 60% narrative, 20% uh, game, 20% player. Right. Um, which I know is a little different than what you gave me. But, That's fine. Um, even though that that's my favorite game, there's some games that I like that are like way more system or way more players. So my ideal game, I think it's going to have to be something like 20% for the game, for the, for the system, right? And then the rest of that, the other 80% needs to be split up 40 and 40 with the GM and the players because the people sitting at the table are the people that are making up the game that you're playing. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're what's important there. The story is not as important as making sure that those players are happy. And that system should be there to facilitate how I want to play and how my cohorts want to play and, and what we want to make together. So it's, it's just kind of a facilitator for the creative stuff that's being spat out on the table from the GM and the players. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Jennifer J. Dixon. Thank <laughs> you.